The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm joined today by composer and association, Andrew Norman. Welcome, Andrew. Everybody welcome him. Hello. Thank you. Great to have you with us this week. Great to have you on the podcast. And I know these folks are really interested in getting to know you a little bit better. So, Composer and Association, what does that mean? What is that title? What are you going to be doing with us the next two years? Well, um, I'm super thrilled to be here. It is a two-year post, as you just said. The symphony, along with Thierry, will be performing a few of my works this season and next season. And I will also be doing some outreach activities, going to the schools. I did some of that this week. I talked to a couple elementary school classes. I talked to the string players at the Gifted Music School. Mm -hmm. So it's just a chance for me to really go out into the community and to talk about how to make music and what does it mean to make music. And I love doing that with people of all ages. And I think there's something really empowering about exploring sound with people, especially kids, because sure. they, they just love it. So I have this workshop thing I do with fourth graders where we get them making sounds and thinking about how to organize sounds and then they write a little piece for themselves to play. It's, it's quite fun. So um, I'm doing stuff like that and I am also working with the symphony and mm -hmm. I think this was all Thierry's idea right. to kind of form a longer kind of relationship between a composer and an ensemble. Now one of the things about being a composer of orchestral music, which is what I primarily do, is that I go everywhere for, for a couple days at a time. Right, you go everywhere once. I go everywhere <laughs> once. Yeah. And uh, the orchestra is often complete strangers to me. And uh, I, you know, the only thing that they know of me is the notes that I've put on the page. And so it's this very kind of impersonal way of making music or anonymous way of making music. And I don't think it should be that way. I don't think it always was that way. And Thierry agrees. And so the idea is that I'm forming this relationship with the players of the Utah Symphony. They're getting to know my language and what I like to do. And together, we're going to be able to build some things that we wouldn't have if I was just a sort of stranger composer. So the, the workflow of, of an orchestral composer is usually you get a commission, they schedule the premiere like two or three years in advance and it's set in stone and you must not be late. <laughs> and then you go off by yourself for a very long time and think of every last possible detail in this piece and you write it all down. And then you show up two days before the premiere and they rehearse it and play it and that's it. Yeah. And 
it's often not so collaborative because it's hard to be collaborative with 95 people in sure. two days. So I'm looking for ways that so we can tweak this model a little bit and actually sort of collaborate mm -hmm. with musicians in the making of, of orchestral music. Mm -hmm. um, I have this idea in my head that I'll write a piece and I'll be able to talk to Madeline or, or I'll be able to talk to your trombone player and, sure. and say, how do you feel about this? How does this make you feel to play? Do you want to do this? Like, um, and that kind of relationship is something that it's really exciting to me. I mean, that's the kind of interaction you probably haven't had since you were a college student. I mean, that just yeah. doesn't happen. Well, much. I get it in chamber music. Sure, um, that's When I true. do stuff in the chamber music world, it's yeah. much more, uh, there's a dialogue there. And I think that just the way the orchestra world is set up, there's just n not much room for dialogue. Right, right. I, I want to talk a little bit about your history because, sure. you know, being a composer has probably never since time immemorial been an easy life. You have to really hustle, especially at the beginning. And no, no teacher in their right mind should be telling you when you're a student that you can make a living doing this. This is an easy thing. This is a great career choice for you. So what made you do it? You probably had other things you were interested in. I know you wanted to be an architect yeah, at one I, point. I did so did be an architect. And then I kind of woke up one day and I was in music school. And it was a little bit like, how did this happen? That's how it happens to all of us, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm in music school. I better make the best of it. Um, yeah, you know, I think. For me, composing, first of all, was always just about being creative on my instruments. I play the piano and the, and the viola, and both of those instruments were always a kind of creative space for me. It was not necessarily, maybe it was the kind of teachers that I had, but they instilled that as, as a value. And the idea that you could express yourself and make things up was, was really central to, to my idea of playing an instrument. And then also, music is a highly social thing. I grew up playing an orchestra school, which is incredibly fun, and um, I started writing for the orchestra as kind of a natural extension of my social world of like, I want to write for my friends. Um, and so there's always been that component of, I do this because I'm interested in interacting with other people and, you know, making things together. I, I don't want to, you know, go broadly into your catalog at this point, but I do have to say as a listener of your music, and you and I met ages ago at, um, at Crested Butte. You, you oh. probably don't even remember this. It was so long ago. You were, I think, 12. And, <laughs> yeah, it was very early in your career. But right. I've always felt like the comment you just made about writing music for your friends, I think, describes your work very well. I think your music always sounds like you're writing for friends. Okay. Which I think is cool. interesting. And I mean it as a compliment. But Thank you. So further to this idea of success, which you are having a great deal of right now. And it, I've, I wrote to you earlier that it seems to me like composers are either very hungry or very busy. Mm. And you're the latter. You're I'm very, also very, very hungry busy. too. I mean, <laughs> well, that's good if you anything. can keep that in play as well. But you talked about the sort of commission timeline. And it's possible that you have many of those on your plate at the same time. I mean, what's your process now that you're so busy? How do you keep it all uh, well, in check? Well, I'm still trying to figure that one out. I'm yeah. really, I do have to work on multiple pieces mm. at once and I'm not very good at it. Writing music, it's not an easy process for me. Um, doesn't flow out. Mm -hmm. I often say that it's something like I have to go searching for the piece. It doesn't find me. I have to go find it. Um, and I often, the, the road toward a piece is often very circuitous. And sometimes, quite often, actually, I get lost and I don't know how to find the thing. And then, miraculously, I will find something that I can start to work with. And then, and then from there, a bigger structure grows. But so every piece no matter how late it is or how time crunched, I, I, I have to give it the time that it needs. 
I have to be able to find this sort of essence of the piece before I'm able to, to work. And once I found that, usually I can, can write pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But um, the process of finding that, it's very, a very tricky um, thing. And I'm, of course, in the middle of it right now. Of so. course. Of <laughs> and you're managing several of these journeys at a time. So you might be a different kind of lost with each one. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very tricky. Yeah. I'm just, just right now finishing a piece for the Los Angeles Philharmonic for the opening of, of their centennial season. And it was a big thing that I thought about for a long time. I'm also working on a cello concerto. Mm -hmm. It's premiering later this season. And I'm also revising an old piano concerto, not the one you're going to hear tonight, a right. different one. Right. So I've got these three projects that I've been trying to juggle for the last, like, kind of 10 months. Sure. And, um, and I wrote a children's opera, too, which was like... Oh, just that was dash fun. that was, off. Was, yeah. That was super fun. Yeah. But... Um, but um, but again, it's like trying to keep them, the essences of these things, um, like right in front of me and, and clear as I'm working. It's tricky. I, I think that's fascinating. And I, and I watched an interview that you gave in 2015 with a friend of yours. And you talked about how you like to rethink your voice mm. once in a while. Mm -hmm. And how no matter what you do to try to retool things, you always kind of end up where you always were. <laughs> yes, it does happen. What do you think that means generally about creativity and individuality? And I mean, what are, what are the big picture things that says to you? Well, you know, everyone's different and everyone has a different creative process. But for me, it has always been important that I ask some big questions as I'm starting a piece. Mm -hmm. um, some big questions about what do I have to say and why am I saying it and to whom? And, and um, you know, the kind of, kind of existential questions of, of why we make things. And I do feel like I have to kind of go through those same sort of questions on every single piece. For some reason, they aren't just answered in my, in my worldview. I, I have to go back. And I often do, as, as I guess I said earlier, I, came, I come up with similar things, but I feel like the journey toward them is often right. not similar. And it's for whatever reason, that's just part of my process that I have to ask those questions. Yeah. And I, I don't think I would do it any other way. Quite honestly, I mean, because it's those are those are really important questions to ask. It also appears to be working for you, so I'd stick with what you're doing. Well, except it, sometimes it produces a great amount of anxiety because sure. I don't know what the answer to those questions sure. are. Maybe maybe I'll back up. What I love about symphonic music is that it's abstract largely, and it's like you're listening to the mind of some other person at work. Right. It's like you're listening to Beethoven's mind when you listen to Beethoven, and you're getting a sense for how his mind works and what he's asking and how he's searching. And I want my music to have that same quality. I want it to be a sort of picture of my brain and the process of my brain and what matters to me. And I think in order to do that, honestly, I, I do have to ask those big questions. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking of it. And I'm, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Suspend. And I know sure. you're going to tell the audience from the stage sort of what to expect from the piece. And you wrote a great bit of uh, prose in the program book that explains what the piece is about. But I'm curious for you, this idea of sort of this music projecting an image of your brain, I suppose it projects a snapshot image of your brain in 2014. So yeah. I'm wondering how it feels to you now, four years on. Does it say different things to you? I mean, it certainly feels to me a bit like 2014. <laughs> that was a different time. <laughs> yeah, we were, yeah. things were different. Yeah. I had just moved to Los Angeles uh -huh. in 2014, and um, I, was, I think I was thinking about space and time in, in a different sort of way. This piece uh, feels to me slightly different from a lot of the other work that I've made recently. Um, a lot of my pieces are, I, I don't know if any of you remember, I was here like 
three years ago, two years ago? It was in 2016. 2016, yep. to do a percussion concerto. With the Colin one we took Curry. to Carnegie Hall. The one you took to Carnegie Hall, yeah. Uh, which was a big, fast, crazy piece with thousands and thousands and thousands of notes and mm -hmm. uh, wild, wild shifts in tone and um, material structure um, filled with all sorts of jump cuts and very, very fast sort of cinematic things. Right. And around the time that I was writing that percussion concerto, I had to write this piano concerto, which you're going to hear. And from the opening, I knew I wanted it to be the exact opposite. And it was the first time where I'd had this idea that what was important to me was that the piece should unfold like one continuous thought without a single break. Mm -hmm. Like it was, um, I wanted this to feel like the pianist was making this thing up and that there was a thread from beginning to end and that I wasn't going to pull a single surprise or jump cut sure. or anything. And that was new in 2014 that I was really trying to think about, can I structure a 20 minute long piece that is continuously organic from beginning to end? And it's something that I've done since and I think I've gotten a little bit better. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to hear this piece, but um, <laughs> uh, we always get better, hopefully, yeah. when, we, when we try to do things. Certainly. So, uh, but that's sort of that's sort of how I think about it. Yeah. It's like, um, oh, here's this thing that this was the first time I tried to really pull. Yeah. And you will definitely feel I am pulling at the silences and these very, very quiet sounds and how long we can all kind of inhabit that kind of space together. Right. I, I think it's interesting to juxtapose the two pieces because if the one, if Switch was all about jump cuts and changes in perspective and quick shifts of idea, this piece is more like one shot, like like yeah. like like that movie Russian Arc, where the whole thing is yes. done on one shot, which is a fabulous movie, by the way. Yeah, no, um, I definitely think in yeah. those cinematic terms, it's right. like this is this is the long take. Yeah, where you know there's something beautiful about watching something unfold without yeah. a single break in it. Right. I I'm, I want to let you go soon. Sure. Um, because I know you have to prepare for your big speech on stage. Speech. Yeah. But I I want to give you an opportunity to to sort of think big and describe for us what you think the role of living music should be going forward with symphony and opera companies. Why is it still important to commission new work? I will go back to what I said earlier of like composed music for a symphony orchestra being like a picture of someone's brain. Mm -hmm. It like shows you how someone is thinking. And there's something beautifully unfiltered about that. And especially in our world today when I think so much of our experience is mitigated by technology sure. and by you know, Facebook algorithms, which are showing you things that they want to show you and are kind of curating your experience for you and are somehow coming between you and other people. What this is, is really like, I have this idea. I'm sharing this idea with the performers on stage who are then sharing it directly with you. It's mm. like this beautiful kind of circular exchange. And that's so rare. It is so rare. It is, I mean, I could also just say that like being in a room with a hundred musicians making something yeah. is incredible. If you think about all the music in the world that is made on computers now, right. and that is somehow uses uh, electronics and technology, things which are extra personal or beyond mm -hmm. the person mm -hmm. um, to, to get to us. But this is people making things for people. And it is, that, that is so incredibly rare. And special. And special. Yeah. And it also is like people, can say things in this medium now that they, you know, it's like a record of how we are as, as a culture. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we have this amazing history, you know, a 300 year history of how people thought and felt, 1700, and 1800, and 1900. And we need to continue that. 
you know, because yeah. it's like leaving a sense of who we are. But even more, that's, that, that's about posterity and that's about the future. I think it really comes down to the present, is that we have this opportunity to share an experience together about what it means to be alive right now in 2018. And that's a beautiful and very important and significant thing. So of course we should be commissioning new operas and new symphonies. And of course, it's totally okay not to like them. You've got permission, folks. Because there is a, you know, there's this sense we're here in this, this beautiful building to hear Beethoven's amazing Ninth Symphony. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty hard not to like that piece. I yeah. mean, if you were to say, I, I, that piece stinks, that's, it's pretty hard to do that in the, in the year 2018. <laughs> you, but You better have done your research and yeah, have a good exactly. argument. <laughs> but you can totally do that. All of you have equal authority to do that on the Norman because, uh, that's your right, and in fact, it's your job to think you know, critically about what's happening. Do you like it? Do mm -hmm. you not like it? Is it good? Is it bad? Does it meet your expectations? And that's, like a, um, that's kind of an empowering thing to be like, here's yeah. a work of art. I have no idea what it is. I get to decide for myself. I love the idea that, you, that you've now twice brought to us about this sort of brain mapping and being able to sort of visit the inside of your skull through your music because, and I especially like how you bring up the comparison to how we perceive our world now through Facebook and algorithms, which is you're talking about an opportunity to see your brain rather than just be constantly confronted with an assumed marketed map of our own, mm -hmm. which there's a lot to that. Yeah. I'm going to ruminate on that a little while. That's really interesting. I will too. I haven't fully thought it through. But <laughs> I think there's definitely something there. I think so. Let's keep talking about it once we're done. But sure. um, So before I let you go, I, I hate to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, but we have a tradition on the show because of our names, and I'm going to explain this to you folks. This thing behind me is a ghost light, as I said. The idea of the podcast is that once the concert's over and everyone's left, it's as if we stayed behind and had a conversation about craft and all the things that are interesting to us. That's the conceit. What a ghost light has a dual purpose. It is brought on stage when the theater is dark so that people don't trip over stuff or fall into the pit or injure themselves if they have to move around. But there's a secondary sort of mythical purpose of the ghost light, and it's where the name comes from. It's meant to keep the theater ghosts at bay because... If you know anything about theaters, the old ones all have ghosts. All of them. I don't think a Bravanel does yet. It's too young. 1979 is probably not long enough for a ghost, but the Capitol Theater definitely has one. Mm. So I always ask this question to mm -hmm. our guests, people who spend a lot of time in theaters. Andrew Norman, you ever seen a ghost? I think I may have felt a ghost. Do tell. But I, I don't think I've ever actually seen one. Yeah, I mean, it was when I was very young. So it was more, more of like a, you know, like that feeling when a you're presence. in a room and yeah. like, oh, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the only one in here. <laughs> but that was so long ago, so long ago, um, I, haven't, I haven't felt one in a very long time. But you're open to the experience? Oh, sure. Why, Why not? not? I agree. I probably learn something. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please help me thank Andrew Norman, not only for being our Composer Association, but for being, being on the Ghostlight Podcast. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.